If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I'll meet you there in just a moment. Mark chapter 10. Shakespeare's famous tragedy, Macbeth, opens with thunder and lightning and a trio of cackling witches who prophesy to Macbeth that he will soon become king of Scotland. And at the end of the first scene, the witches screech this line that portends the evil that is to come. They screech, (laughs) Fair is foul and foul is fair. I feel like a Tony Award is, is due there for that uh, little job. Um, the power that Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, will soon uh, come to crave will drive them to do evil that they would have never thought of doing themselves. And uh, for those of you who know the play, it will drive them to madness and it will drive them ultimately to death. It is no secret that the lust for power has caused great misery and tragedy throughout human history. The English historian Edward Gibbon uh, wrote in his massive work, The Decline and the Fall of of the Roman Empire, he said, of all our passions and appetites, the love of power is of the most imperious and unsociable nature, since the pride of one man requires the submission of the multitude. The 15th century uh, politician and uh, philosopher Machiavelli once wrote that it is better to be feared than loved if you cannot be both. Nietzsche believed that the will to power is the main driving force in human beings. Plato said that the measure of a man is what he does with power. Tolstoy said that in order to obtain and hold power, a man must love it. And Henry Kissinger called it the ultimate aphrodisiac. I think it's fair to say that the abuse of power seems to be one of the core strategies that Satan uses to try to foil God's plan in human history. Very few people seem to be able to handle power without abusing it, without using it as a tool to serve themselves at the expense of others. How many politicians, how many CEOs, how many pastors, how many wealthy athletes have fallen prey to the abuse of power? Well, the Bible has a great deal to say about power. And the passage that we're going to look at uh, this morning from Mark 10 gets as raw about power as it can get. It is now the last week of Jesus' life. The religious leaders are planning a power play. Some of Jesus' disciples make a power play. And people are going to die as a result. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus wants to speak to us about how the gospel changes the way we view and the way that we use power. Just want to welcome those of you who are listening to us uh, via our uh, podcast or over the internet. We're glad to have you join us. We're in a series, just want to catch everyone up. We're in a series called The Last Days from the last half of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where a Roman cross awaits him. And it's not coincidental that Jesus just spoke to his disciples about wealth. We saw that last week. And that now this week, immediately after talking about wealth, he's going to talk about power. Let's pick up the reading at verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, again, verse 32. They, this is Jesus, the disciples, those who were following him, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. This is the most direct statement of where they're headed now. They're headed to Jerusalem. 
with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Yeah, sure, they were going to Jerusalem, and that's where everything, uh, that's where everything is going to fall apart. And they know that that's where the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, and the Sadducees uh, are. And they know that they are plotting to kill Jesus. So they're afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Now skip down, if you would, in your Bibles to verse 45. We'll come back to the intervening verses in just a moment. But I want to skip ahead to verse 45. For even the Son of Man, Jesus says, did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, just stop there for a moment. It's very clear, I think, that Jesus didn't mince any words regarding what he came to earth to do. He came to die. And he says that very clearly in verses 33 and verse uh, 34, and also in verse 45. That sets him apart, by the way. I want you to hear this. The fact that Jesus came to die sets him apart from the founders of every other major religion. They came to live and be an example. Jesus came to die on a cross. The Roman government, acting in accord with the wishes of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, are going to kill Jesus. Because that's what absolute power does. It kills people who oppose it. Now the question is, why do these religious authorities want Jesus dead? It's because of one little phrase that he used in verse 33. This little phrase, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, to you and to me, that seems like a, a kind of an odd way to refer to yourself. But the, uh, the chief priests, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law knew exactly what Jesus was referring to when he referred to himself as the Son of Man. He's referring to an important passage in Daniel chapter 7, which the religious leaders knew very well, spoke of the coming Messiah. We'll put that up, Daniel chapter 7. I just want to read this. I think it's important to set the stage for what's to come. There before me, Daniel says, was, like one, was, was one like a son of man. He's, he's, uh, God is allowing him to see into the future, to see into eternity. He says, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you saw there, the very beginning of that, it refers to this Son of Man. And so in calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is saying that he is that Messiah that Daniel the prophet was writing about. Now very interestingly, Jesus is going to say in a passage that we'll look at in a few weeks, he's going to say that the religious authorities know and understand very clearly that Jesus is indeed God's King. I mean, they know it. There's no question in their minds that he is the Messiah. Like, they're not thinking, well, he's a fraud. They're not thinking that. They're not thinking he's a wannabe. They're not thinking that. They understand very clearly that he is the one that was prophesied of in Daniel chapter 7. And yet they want to kill him. Why? Why? 
because they can't uh, contemplate, excuse me, they can't contemplate the loss of their power. And so they shut off the truth about Jesus because they must maintain their power. So Jesus must die regardless of the fact that he is exactly who he says he is. And I I would suspect that there are some of you here this morning that can identify exactly with that. You know who Jesus is. You've heard the gospel. You know it's undeniable who Jesus is. But you, in your own heart, have shut the door on him because you're afraid that you will lose control. You will lose autonomy over your life. You will lose power over your life. And so you've, you've, you've shut the door of your heart. On Jesus. And that often happens with people. I was speaking with a young woman recently. He told me, uh, she told me point blank that she said, she said, I can't trust Jesus because I insist on having my own autonomy. And I, I will tell you something. I really appreciated her honesty because many people will try to cloak their fear of losing uh, autonomy in all sorts of rationalizations and logical ins- inconsistencies about Jesus, trying to reduce him to a good example or to a good teacher, but not the king of the universe, when the real issue is that if they could be honest with themselves and others, the real issue is that they just fear losing the power to control their own lives. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Okay, again here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking of his death. And I want you to look at the nature of the death that he describes back in verse 34. It's absolutely brutal. He says that they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and then they will kill him uh, on the cross. Now surely, as Jesus speaks of this, surely, excuse me, his disciples would have been completely absorbed in what he was saying, don't you think? Surely they would say to him, Jesus, if that's what's going to happen, then why go to Jerusalem? And yet what's extraordinary is that two of his disciples aren't even remotely thinking in that direction. Watch, uh, look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in, uh, in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the bapti- uh, baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And then verse 41. When the ten heard about this, the other ten disciples, they became indignant with James and John. Now, I wanna, do you understand what's happening here? Jesus has just talked about his death. And James and John aren't filled with grief or even fear about that. They're concerned about getting cabinet seats in Jesus' kingdom. Now, three times in the last few chapters, Jesus has told all of his disciples, he says, three times, he says, I'm going to die. He says it at the end of chapter 8. He says it in chapter 9. And now he says it here in chapter 10. I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. That's very clear. 
But they're so consumed with the possibility of having power in the kingdom that they think that Jesus is going to set up immediately, the political kingdom that they think Jesus is going to set up immediately, that they're not listening to him. Let's read on. Verse 42. Jesus called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. That's an important uh, phrase. If you, have, if, if you can highlight that in some way, highlight that. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want you to just notice how differently James and John are portrayed in this passage compared to Jesus. James and John want to sit on thrones in power and in glory. Jesus, the Messiah, knows that he must hang on a cross in weakness and shame. The two different perspectives on power and glory are irreconcilable. Now, what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to show you that Jesus, as he's heading toward Jerusalem to die, I want to show you that Jesus teaches that people who follow him must make uh, two choices regarding their philosophy of life. Two choices regarding their philosophy of life. And look, before I show these to you, I want to give credit uh, where credit is due. I meet with a group of men every Wednesday at the Gerst House. You know where the Gerst House is? Raise your hand if you know where the Gerst House is. Okay, yeah, good. We meet at the Gerst House every Wednesday for lunch. We chose the Gerst House because... They have the best selection of draft beers in town. No, I'm just kidding you. That's not why we chose the Gerst House. We chose it because it's convenient uh, for the five of us. And we talk about life. Uh, we read a book together. We talk about it. Uh, and then we pray uh, for one another. Well, the book that we're reading right now has really challenged us because it is a very uh, dense book by one of, if not the most, respected theologians in modern times. His name is John Stott. He just died about five years ago, the late John Stott. And the book is called The Cross of Christ. As it happens, very interesting, as it happens, the chapter that we were supposed to read for this past week included a section on this very passage that we are reading this morning. It's fascinating. And I, and I have to tell you that I am not a b- big believer in coincidences. And so I took it that um, God thought it would be more important for you to hear from the most respected theologian of modern times than mere, well, me. And so the two choices that I'm going to mention are largely the insights of John Stott. So I want you to listen more carefully than you normally do. Now, look, I'm going to tell you something. John Stott is one of the most respected theologians Uh, in all the world. But I have to tell you, I don't think he could have done an imitation of the witches in Shakespeare like I did. So I got something going for me this morning. So Stott lines this out, and and, and the the main principles, I think, really, I want you to pay very close attention to, and then I'll expand on them in just a moment. Here's the first choice that Christ followers have to make regarding their philosophy of life. The first one goes like this. Christ followers must choose between selfish ambition and sacrifice. Christ followers must choose between selfish ambition 
Now, ambition's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with ambition. But selfish ambition is wrong. You got to choose between selfish ambition and sacrifice. Look again at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I don't know which is more astounding. The timing of this request, as we talked about earlier, or the sheer brazenness of the request. We want you to do whatever we ask. I think if if all of us were honest this morning, that's how most of us pray, isn't it? Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever uh, I ask. That's how most of us pray. These guys couldn't be more self-seeking, could they? They seem to have anticipated that there's going to be like an unholy scramble for the most prestigious positions in Jesus' kingdom. And so they decided to get ahead of it all and make advanced reservations. They're blatantly self-seeking. In verse 41, when it says that the other ten disciples were indignant about the request that these two made, my guess is that the other disciples were just upset they didn't get their request for cabinet positions in before James and John did. That's, That's my sense of this. Their whole mentality is absolutely incompatible With the way of the cross, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. That's the way of the cross. James and John want to be go-getters, status seekers. They're hungry for fame and honor. Their daydreams were focused on their own success. I don't know if you know this, but the, 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 the Puritans used to say that if you want to know a man or a woman's heart, ask about their daydreams. Ask about their daydreams. When James and John daydream, they daydream about adulation from the crowds. And when they do, they get a warm feeling inside them as they think about the greatness of the adulation of the crowds. That's the fantasy they enjoy. They wanted fame. They wanted recognition. They want achievement. Sound, sound familiar to anyone here? Is that what you daydream about? Perhaps we've got a room full of Jameses and Johns here. Look back at verse 36 for a moment. Jesus responds to them and he says, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder how you would answer that question. If Jesus said to you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Would you say, I, I want status? I want significance, I want greatness, I want success, I want fame. What would you say? On the other hand, I want you to consider Jesus, and I want you to listen. This is, an, this is a direct quote from John Stott, and we'll put it up here on the screen for you. I want you to listen to what Stott says. He says, Jesus, compared to James and John, Jesus renounced the power and the glory of heaven and humbled himself to be a slave. He gave himself without reserve and without fear to the despised and neglected sections of the community. His obsession was the glory of God and the good of human beings who bear his image. And to promote these, he was willing to endure even the shame of the cross. And follow this. Now he calls us to follow him. Not to seek great things for ourselves, but rather to seek first God's rule and God's righteousness. Which I might add is why many people walk away from Jesus. 
Because the choice between selfish ambition and sacrifice just seems too great. Now, I just, I just want to say once again that there's nothing wrong with godly ambition. There's nothing wrong with saying, look, I want to use the gifts and the talents and abilities that God has given me, and I want to, I want to use them to the greatest, and I want, to, I want to impact as many people. I want to bless as many people with my gifts, talents, and abilities as I possibly can. Nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, we should give thanks for Christ's followers who are in positions of power. But if the goal is for your self-benefit and not for the benefit of others, then it's selfish ambition, and that is wrong. And so here, as Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem to die on a Roman cross, the disciples understand, you know, now that Jesus is the Messiah that Daniel 7 talked about. The disciples get that. And now in the last half of the gospel, as he heads toward the cross, Jesus wants them to understand the cost of following him. And he said, one of those costs is that you have to choose between selfish ambition and sacrifice. And as I said, many of his followers begin to leave. And the crowd that has been following him for the first half of the gospel of Mark begins to thin out. The choice between selfish ambition and sacrifice. Here's the second choice that Christ followers must make. Christ followers must choose between power and service. Power and service. It's clear that James and John aren't uh, satisfied with just prestige and honor. They want power. They want power. They're hungry for power as well. Verse 37, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. I think that's very magnanimous of them. You choose, Jesus, which one of us sits on which side. We, that's up to you. We don't really care. We just want to make sure that we're on the left, that one of us is on the left and one of us is on the right. These are seats of power, uh, you see. And I want you to just think about this. James and John in our culture today, would be role models. We live in a culture that loves power. We live in a place that is acquisitive and grasping, and it respects it. Go get what's yours. Grab the brass ring. You deserve it. And James and John display classic characteristics of the power hungry themselves. Jesus has just spoken about death, and they show no sensitivity to his feelings. And that's the power mindset, you see. It tramples upon people to achieve its ends. It does what it likes, when it likes, and it exploits others. It's my way or the highway. That's the mindset of power. The world loves power, you see. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 42 when he said, He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, remember Jesus is speaking primarily to Jewish people. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. What he's saying here, what he means is that they abuse their power for selfish gain. They never let the people under them forget that they are subservient. They're proud of their power. They're even violent about their power. The former chairman of the Communist Party of China, Mao Zedong, once said this. He said, all power comes out of the end of a gun. Now compare that with what Jesus says in verse 43. Not so with you. 
Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Do you want to follow Jesus? If you, if you want to follow Jesus, that's what it looks like. Humble service, not oppressive power. The, the worldly model of leadership, you see, is a pyramid, like where the power is at the top and everybody else is underneath it. And the people below have to carry the weight of the people above. That's the worldly model of leadership. But I want you to understand that the gospel turns this whole model of leadership upside down. Leaders must be servants bearing the weight of the pyramid, serving people. The symbol of authentic Christian leadership is not a throne of ivory and gold, but a basin of water for the washing of feet. Very contrary, I think you would agree. To the world's idea of greatness. What Jesus teaches in this passage about power is revolutionary. Christ's followers must choose between selfish ambition and sacrifice. And they must choose between power or service. Now, can we just, can we do this? Can we just play around uh, with this for just a moment to consider like how it might affect your world if you chose to follow Christ in this way, if you, choose, if you chose to use whatever power you have in your world, if you chose to use it in the way that Christ says that you should use it. I mean, because everybody here has some power. I mean, like, I'm not saying you're more powerful than everybody else, but you have some power. Everybody here has some power. What would it look like if you chose to follow Christ with your power in this way? Husbands, let me ask you a question. This is a tough one because it's Mother's Day, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's very real, and so I'm gonna say it anyway. Husbands, how would it affect your leadership in your home if you used your leadership power in the way that Christ calls you to do it? Let me start very, very personally. How would it affect your sex life, men, if you became more about serving and giving than taking and receiving? What would happen, men, husbands, if you literally put your wife first in your sex life, her pleasure before yours? I, 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 know, that, I know that's very personal, but it's very real. What if what she wanted mattered more than what you wanted? That would be using power in a humble, sacrificial way. Or what if your wife's chronic illness, let's say, got in the way of your career? Could you sacrifice your career to take care of your wife? Men, could you do that? That's the way the gospel affects people. It causes them to use power to serve, not for their own selfish benefit. Those of you who own your own business and have people who work for you, how would it change your leadership if you decided to follow Christ's lead of self-sacrifice over ambition? Let me ask you something. Could you leave some money on the table 
in order to let your employees spend enough time with their families rather than having to work long hours away from their families. Oh, I mean, if they work long hours away from their families, you make more money. Yeah, but could you leave it? Could you leave some money on the table to give them the opportunity to spend more time with their families, an appropriate amount of time with their families? Could you do that? Look, I, I know that prosperity theology would say to you, well, look, God will honor your sacrifice. You'll make as much money in less hours. Nonsense. I mean, that might happen, but there is no promise in the Bible about that. And I'm asking you, business owners, what if you have to leave money on the table for the sake of your employees' families? Could you do that? Managers, those of you who manage people, if you followed the way of the cross in your management, like maybe it would mean giving other people credit for things rather than you taking credit for everything good that happens in your department or area. Have you ever worked for someone like that? Like if, if your manager is here today, don't raise your hand, but if your manager is not here today, have you ever worked for someone that takes credit for everything and doesn't give you any credit at all? Raise your hand. Okay, most of you, your manager goes to work here, goes to church here, I think. So. Here's the thing. The way of the cross looks so distinctive. It is so countercultural that when you lead like this, when you use whatever power you've been given in your world to serve rather than to use it for your own selfish amb- ambition, when you do that, people have to stand up and take notice that there's something different about you, that you march to a different drumbeat. And the drumbeat, of course, that you march to is the drumbeat of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples who was here as Jesus was teaching this. His name was Peter. He would later on write, after Jesus had died on the cross, after he'd been raised up from the dead, he would later on write this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, Jesus is like every other uh, religious leader, he is also an example. But Jesus went further than every other religious leader in that his example was that he died on a cross for the people who followed him and for the people actually who were enemies of his. At the cross, Jesus, the one whom Daniel 7 spoke of, who was given authority and glory and sovereign power, who all nations and peoples of every language would one day worship, whose kingdom will never be destroyed. He laid down his life for his enemies. It wasn't taken from him involuntarily. He laid it down willingly. And I just want you to listen as John Stott ends his exposition of this passage with this. Listen, we'll put it up on the screen. It is the glory of Christ's cross which shows up James and John's selfish ambition for the shabby, tatty, threadbare thing that it was. And it highlights the choice that faces the Christian community in every generation between the way of the crowd and the way of the cross. As we close this passage this morning, We're going to do something a little different. I've taken a passage of scripture from John chapter 13 that speaks to this very issue. And I've turned it into a responsive reading. So I'd like to ask you, if you would, to please stand with me. And I'm going to read first, and then you will read the parts that are in bold, okay? So I'll read first, 
And then we'll have something that comes up in bold, and you'll read that. Let me start with this. This is from John chapter 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Read this now uh, together. So he got up. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now that you know these things, Jesus said, you will be blessed if you do them. You can be seated. Lord Jesus Christ, Once again, we're confronted with the fact that uh, your way, the way of the cross, is so countercultural. It's so different than the way of the world in which we live in. There are so many things that when we come to a saving relationship with you that we have to unlearn, things that seemed right. Use power for selfish ambition. Boy, that seemed right. That was what everybody taught us from childhood up. But when we come to you, you turn all of that upside down. We must unlearn that. We must learn the way of the cross. Lord Jesus, this morning we ask that you would transform our minds, that you would renew our minds. And Lord, that as you renew our minds, that we would go back into our uh, daily life and that we would use whatever power that we have in a very different way, that we would use it for others' benefit rather than for our own selfish ambition. Lord Jesus, we, we want to honor you. We want to bring glory to, uh, to your name as a community of believers. Let that be very true of us as a church. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.